And uh, so I, we're going to be opening up Colossians 3, 1 through 4, if you want to turn in your Bible. And I'm going to invite up Anne Storm to read our passage. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. My daughter and son-in-law were a big part of the church here, and they moved with our grandchildren to Texas. Our son uh, followed with his wife, and they lived 10 minutes apart from each other. So we got all our kids and grandkids in Texas. So... Well, they asked me to send you their warmest greetings. They miss the Grace uh, family here, and, uh, and I, I miss them. <laughs> well, this morning, um, I wanted to thank the church for the 30 years that this church has supported Every Generation Ministries. So I founded the work in 1991 when Marla and I moved to Poland, and Grace has been a faithful supporter of the ministry since that time. And uh, many of you have traveled with me overseas, have been to our ministry work, which is in 16 countries around the world now, the most recent ministry in Kenya. I got a call from one of my friends in Poland a few months ago, who's uh, a grandfather now also. And he was walking by one of the Sunday school classrooms at his church in Krakow, where we used to live, and he saw a girl in there who's my son's age, uh, 28, 29 years old, who was a little uh, five-year-old, probably the last time we saw her, teaching Sunday school in her class. He went in to say hello to her, and she was teaching with EGM materials on an Apple iPhone in her class. And so the ministry's developed, is taken in new technology that we have available to us, and thanks so much for being part of that um, with uh, EGM over all these years. What a blessing. So let me pray for the church and thank God for you and your commitment to the missionary work we're doing with children and churches all over the world. Let me pray. God, we are so thankful for the Grace Fellowship Church family and the faithful ways that they've supported EGM over all the years. And God, I pray your blessing on the church, uh, the individuals in it, and not just for the financial gifts that have been so amazingly gracious, but for the heart that this church has given to the ministry and its people in praying for the work and rallying to the ministry in challenging times and celebrating with the ministry in times of fruitfulness. And we pray your blessing on this church, and we thank you for each and every one of them. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, fantastic passage. And I wanted us to start by looking at an image that I know we've all seen before. And uh, I got permission uh, beforehand, I checked because I'm not so good on the political correct thing. It is okay to use the word hag, I was told. So, it, they're not going to cut me off. So, in this picture, you can see two things. How many of you see the old lady kind of with her head down and the scarf over her head and so on? You can all see that. How many of you see the beautiful young girl with her head pointed away with the feather up on her bonnet looking away? 
Okay, the fascinating thing about this picture is it just depends on how you look at it. Does everybody see now? There's two different views you can have. One of them is of the beautiful young Belle. The other one is the old hag. And it's fascinating to me. I'm, how many of you have seen this before? It's really common, right? Yeah. Okay, well, in Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul, listen to you all. <laughs> like you're all into it. Somebody's like, there's no beautiful girl in there. It's a hag. <laughs> no, honey, just look at it differently. <laughs> all right, settle down here. <laughs> I need my wife's teaching skills. You know, let's put our hands together and sit quietly now. <laughs> Well, in Colossians chapter 3, the big message that you find in these four verses is there's two ways to look at life and two ways to set your mind on life, and you have to choose. And he's going to make a comparison uh, on several different levels between two options that we have. And before we look closely at the uh, verse, let me just kind of give a little of a background that Dave's been working on through the, through the book. He's coming up to chapter 3, and in chapter 2, he and, and Timothy, it says, wrote with him, are telling the Colossian church that you've received a gospel, but now you've listened to teaching that isn't consistent with that gospel, and it's causing the church to, to move astray. So it's sort of an argument against whoever it was that came to the church and was influencing them in the wrong direction, to see things in the wrong way and not in the way that God would have them view life. And so when he comes up to chapter 3, he's going to talk to the Colossians about making a choice between how you view life and how you live life. And in chapter 2, verse 6, he talks about what it means. He talks about walking in Christ. And in chapter 3, in these verses we're going to study and then following, He's going to explain more about what it means for us to walk in Christ. So, if we look in the four verses that Anne read so ably, um, he introduces immediately this contrast between heaven, things above, and things below. Do you see that? He says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your things Hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of, the, of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So this is a big theme in the Bible in general. We even heard it in one of the readings this morning where it talked about wisdom from above. The Old Testament in particular draws a contrast between seeing things from a heavenly perspective and seeing things from an earthly perspective. And there are two different ways of viewing this world. Let me give you a few examples of the way that's used in the Bible. It starts immediately in Genesis 1-7. God made the expanse, separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. So God created a world where you have heaven above and things below. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 39, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. So there's heaven above, there's earth below, and God is God over all of it. 
And then in Jeremiah 31, 37 is another example. There's many. You can go do a word search on above and below. You'll see it in the Bible. In Jeremiah 31, 37, it says, Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So in the Jewish thinking of Paul's day, there's heaven above, there's earth below, and the earth below suffers from the fall and sin and sorrow and brokenness. And heaven above is where God reigns completely and fully. And their expectation and their hope was that someday heaven would come to earth and the earth would be restored and the reign of God would be complete and fully evident in this world. This was the hope of a Jewish person, that sin would be gone and that God would reign and bring heaven to earth. Heaven, for a Jewish person, wasn't someplace you go to to get away from the earth. God had made the earth. He created people, you and I, and he wants to restore all of his creation where he reigns completely and heaven comes to earth. And you see it in the apocalypse when the new Jerusalem comes down to earth. And there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain. This is what the Jewish person expected in Paul's day. And he's telling the Colossians that you need to get your mind set on things of God and heavenly things above and not focus your attention on the fallen brokenness of this world. So when I was growing up, I heard this phrase a lot. Tell me if you've heard this. They are so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. The idea was that people were so committed to following Christ, Christian virtue, and so on, that they offended other people, especially non-Christians. So I wanted to suggest that what um, Paul is trying to deal with is that we be so heavenly minded that we are completely earthly good. In other words, he's not concerned about being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. He's concerned that you're so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good on this earth. I struggle with and many of us probably struggle with focusing our minds and our hearts on the things of this earth. <laughs> things like our financial assets, bank account balances, stocks, politics, sports. LSU won last night. I tried, I couldn't watch the game because I, um, I was at a little event last night and I was not going to watch it until I could watch it live, but I went to Louisiana State University and on the way home I had to look and see how bad we lost. When I found out we won, changed everything, I was stoked, I slept great, it's all great. <laughs> Get your mind focused on the things of this earth, the sports, personal appearance. 
we get drawn into the sexualized, horribly sexualized nature of our society, and like a frog in a kettle, we embrace what I would call some sort of bizarre Christian narcissism, where we give our attention to the things of this world and not to the things of God and the things of heaven above. In contrast, Paul would tell the Colossians that we should be focused on kingdom qualities like unconditional love, grace, patience, sacrifice, gentleness, concern for the family of God, concern for those outside the family of God, commitment to your church community, your friends, family, giving our financial resources to God for His ministry work, living a life of worship, sacrificing for others, to name a few qualities that we should be focused on. Instead, we set our mind and attention on the things of this world. And what you set your mind on, what you give attention to, matters. Matters how you think, and it matters how you act. And I've worked with children for 40 years, and children make that completely obvious. When Caleb was three years old, he suddenly discovered I was bald. (laughs) One morning, it just dawned on him. At lunch, I'm looking across the table at him, and I notice he's not looking at me like eye to eye. He's staring at the top of my head. Then he said, Dad, I think if you eat, I don't even remember what it could kill boss or something, it'll make your hair grow, I think. <laughs> He's three years old. <laughs> that evening when we were next to the bed to pray, before Marla comes in, he looks up at me, totally sincere. And of course, he didn't look at me, he looks at the top of my head and says, Dad, I can cut some of my hair off and give it to you. The entire day, he was like obsessed about my being bald, because that was what he had set his mind on. And children are like that. When I first started working with children, this is my favorite, I was teaching a group of kindergarten, kindergartners, about 30 of them, and I'm teaching about the wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And I start the story, and a little boy raises his hand right into the story and says, um, Mr. Daniel, when, when they had to go to the bathroom, where did they go to the bathroom at in the wilderness? I said, I don't know. You know, I'm like... <laughs> I just started working with children. I'm like, what the fuck what, what is that? <laughs> I don't know. So then I back to the story. I'm going a few more minutes in the story. Boom, up his hand goes again. Did they dig, dig a hole in the ground and go to the bathroom in a hole in the ground? <laughs> I'm like, what is that? No, I don't know. So then I'm back to the story, you know, and I'm going through the rest of the story. All of a sudden, he raises his hand. He goes, they have those blue things, you know, that you open the door on, the plastic ones, and you... <laughs> I'm like, no, they didn't have those. I'm just about to end the story. He raises his hand. You know what he said? I got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) What you set your mind on, what you give your attention to, what you think, it affects how you think and what you do. And Paul is telling the Colossians to set your mind and your heart on the things above. And then he goes on on this same theme and develops another sort of um, juxtaposition between death and life. And he speaks about being dead to sin and alive in Christ. And he says something like this in Colossians 2, 12 and 13, let me read. 
where he writes, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, we raised, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And Paul returns to that very idea in chapter 3 when he says we've been raised with Christ. In verse 3, he says, for you have died. And he sets this juxtaposition up, which he does in many, much of his writing, between we've died to sin and sorrow and we're not a slave to sin any longer. We've been raised up into a new life in Christ. We are dead to the way of things below, and we are alive in Christ to the things of God above is the message that he reiterates using this death and life metaphor. And he says that somehow we're seated with Christ at the right hand of God the Father, that we should think that way and live that way. And he's talking about Jesus, who has the perfect nature. He has all the power and authority of God. He's going to judge this world. And we have access to that power in our life. That the power that raised him from the dead is the power that we can experience as a Christian to live the life where we are set on the things of God. He offers us his resurrection power to live that way. We are dead to a slavery to sin. As a Christian, we don't have to sin any longer. We have the power of God that raised Christ from the dead that allows us to live the new life that he has for us. Now, we may choose to sin, and I'm not arguing for the perfectionist life, but I am saying that Paul is teaching that we are no longer a slave to that, that we have the ability through the power of God to live the life that he intends for us. We are dead to sin, and we are alive to Christ and can live the life that he intends for us. I love that message. We are not set free by attending Grace Fellowship Church. I love the church, though. We're not set free by giving financially to God's work. We're not set free by praying the sinner's prayer or singing the right worship songs with gusto. We're set free by faith in Christ and the power of the resurrection. That's the message. We are dead to sin, and we are alive in Christ. Marla had an uncle, T.D. T.D. was a, a, a hoot. He wasn't actually an uncle. He was Marla's dad's cousin, but we all called him Uncle T.D., he was about four years older than my father, and he was a true blue Texan, and he had enlisted in the Navy during World War II in the Marine Corps. 
And he used to love to tell people that he was killed and died at the Battle of the Coral Sea in 1943. This would have been like 1995 was the first time I heard that, that he had died in 1943. And he would say it with that Texas lilt just for effect. See what everybody would do when he'd say that, that he died. Well, the story was, and some of you know I'm a history buff, especially uh, World War II and especially naval history because my dad was in the Navy in the war. And so Uncle TD was assigned to the USS Lexington and the Marine duty that was in charge of ship, ship security. So he was on the USS Lexington in the Battle of the Coral Sea. And if any of you are familiar with that, it was the first naval battle where the naval ships never saw each other. So the Japanese discovered the American carriers. This was about three or four months before Midway. They launched a, a carrier aircraft attack on the U.S. carriers, and they bombed the USS Lexington. And he was killed in the bombing. And the Lexington launched her planes and the other U.S. carriers, and they bombed the Japanese carrier. But that carrier launched its planes a second time, and they bombed the Lexington again, and this time it was fatal. And there's very famous pictures of the Lady Lex, it was called, tilted over, smoke billowing out, men being taken off the ship because they ordered abandoned ship because it sank in the Coral Sea. Well, the protocol was if you were killed in a naval battle, they would take your body to the refrigerator unit and put the bodies in sort of cold storage, when the battle was over, they would get the bodies out and do the appropriate burial ceremonies and so on. So when Uncle T.D. was killed, he was put in the refrigerator unit on the USS Lexington. When the captain gave the order to abandon ship, you know, the military has protocols for everything. When the order is given to abandon ship, the medical team goes to the refrigerator unit and makes sure all the people are really dead because they're going down with the ship and they're gonna be buried at sea in the, in the Lexington. So when the doctor went to the refrigerator unit, he checked all the pulses or whatever they did and discovered that Uncle TD was actually not dead. <laughs> he had a pulse. <laughs> they put him on a gurney, they took him out unconscious, they lowered him down that net thing and he lived through the Battle of the Coral Sea, but would tell people I died in 1943. <laughs> He got a Purple Heart, a Navy Cross, he had all the decorations, just a fantastic, wonderful man who understood what it meant to die and then come back to life. And that's exactly what Paul's teaching in this passage. We are dead to sin and slavery to sin. That's over for you if you're in Christ. And we can be raised up in a new life and experience the power of God to live the life he intends for us. Uncle T.D., you died, but you've been raised in Christ, Paul says in Colossians 3. Then he turns to this fascinating uh, phrase about being hidden. It says in verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, hidden is a phrase that Paul's used in the book previously, the letter. So in 126, Colossians, he writes, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages 
and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Colossians 1.26. Verse, uh, verse 3 of chapter 2, the chapter immediately previously, he says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The point seems to be that when you enter into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ, it gives you a perspective, a way of living that's hidden to other people. In other words, those outside of Christ live according to the things below and can't fathom the values and morality and priorities of Christ, his kingdom, and his followers. If we reject Christ, it leaves you unaware of God's kingdom values and how he would have us live, and they remain in some sense hidden or unfathomable to someone outside the family of God. And when that person realizes gives their life to Christ and surrenders themselves to Him, suddenly the blinders are taken away and they understand the way that we live. If we live with our minds set on the heavenly things above. When we set our mind on living with our priorities in line with God, we can expect for the world to be quizzical about the way we live and why we do the things that we do. And I've seen that my entire life. And I don't know, maybe some of you don't even realize it. The founder of Quaker Oats, Henry Parsons Kroll, took all the money that he had made, all of his stock, all the cash and everything else, and put it in the Kroll Trust, which has given millions of dollars to Christian ministries for decades since he passed away years and years ago. The woman who I married, who has worked as a Christian school teacher, who has a friend in Temecula who's in a public school teaching third grade who makes twice the salary that my wife makes and has an enormous pension coming to her. And my wife has worked, called by God, in a way that her friend cannot understand. Why would you teach in a Christian school and make half as much money, and when you turn 65, there's like hardly anything for you? What is that? Or the young boy in the DRC who asked his pastor to go with him, he was 14 years old, to a jail to offer forgiveness to a man who had beaten and sexually assaulted his sister when they were walking home from school together just a few days earlier, and he wanted to go and offer forgiveness and share the message of salvation with the man who had treated his sister so brutally days before. This is hidden from the world around us. Or my favorite personal example is we started a ministry in Egypt years ago, and the ministry there got going, and they wanted a car so that they could travel to churches, work with churches, have a vehicle to haul supplies, training children's workers and Sunday school teachers in churches. And so uh, the board agreed, our board in the United States, that I could try to raise the money for this vehicle. And so as I always would do, I'd pray, is there certain people that I thought might be interested in that? And 
have a heart for that that God would direct me to. And I had identified five or six couples, and we needed $15,000 for this car, which buy a new car in Egypt. That's kind of amazing. A lot of money, though, back in those days especially. So there was one young uh, family that I knew had a heart for Egypt, and so I decided I was going to meet with him and ask him to pray about helping with the car in Egypt. So the day of the meeting, we were going to meet for coffee in the afternoon or something. He called me and asked me if I could pick him up at the car dealership. Kind of weird, you know? So I'm sure. And then we'll go have coffee and maybe you could drop me back at my house or office. And I said, okay. So I got to the place and he was turning in his SUV to be serviced. It had 150,000 miles on it. It was like on its last leg. He had kids. And I thought, geez, I can't ask the guy to help with a car for, you know, his car's falling apart, his own car. You know, he can't. So we got in the car, we're driving to coffee, and I thought, you know, God put him on his heart, I should just, you know, follow, the God, follow God's leading, see what happens, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I told him about our need and told him the funds that we needed and asked him to pray about that, and, and then I um, left and dropped him somewhere, and um, he drove that SUV for another like four or five years. When he sold it, it had a quarter of a million miles on the thing. Uh, wow is right. The next day, he called me and said that he had prayed with his wife. They were sending a check for $15,000 <laughs> while his own car is falling apart. <laughs> Who does that? Who would give money for a ministry in Egypt when they're driving a clunker that they put another 100,000 miles on? This is the kind of behavior that's hidden from the world around us. When we're living a life with our minds set on the things above. Well, he finishes the passage when he says, um, after he talks about our high, uh, life being hidden in Christ with God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. What a, an appropriate song we sang this morning. So Paul concludes the passage with a word of hope for the Colossian Christians. So it was a tough deal for the Colossian Christians. They were being persecuted by the J Jewish religion in general as a sect. They're also being persecuted by Jewish Christians who thought they were missing the message of the real gospel, which is you can be justified by faith in Christ, but you have to be Jewish also. And they're being persecuted by the government, both local and the Roman Empire at large. And their hope that Paul reminds them of is that Christ will return. And when he does, the kingdom that's been planted here, we're like a beachhead in an invasion. When Christ returns, his kingdom and his reign will be realized everywhere on this earth. And we, he says, will appear with him in glory. He will reign and we will reign with him when his kingdom is fully realized. And this is our hope. Our hope is not that we're going to be, I don't know where all this, we're going to go fly away and be with the cherubim in the cloud somewhere. No, it's that Jesus is going to return 
and he is going to reign completely over this earth. And there will be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain. It's all going to be as God originally intended this earth and you and I and our relationships to be. And we should live with that hope. Our hope is not in our bank accounts. Our hope is not in our real estate portfolio values. Our hope is not in how we look, our education, or anything other than the return of Christ and his reign. Some of you know I, I lived in Poland for 10 years. We lived 45 minutes from Auschwitz. And some of you have been with me to Auschwitz that are here today. And it's some place you don't ever forget. Well, I went there so many times, I think I went there like 70 sometimes, that I sort of developed, Marla would say it was an obsession with the Holocaust. And it got kind of dark because it was evil and wicked and bad. But I remember one story it touched me at the time, and it's such a great illustration to finish today's message, is that when Jewish families realized that they were being torn apart, children taken from their parents, and parents separated, and never see each other again kind of experiences that someday that that would end, hopefully, they thought. And when it does, if we're alive, we should make some plans to reunite our families together. So most Jewish families during the war, especially in Poland, created some kind of plan that if Marla would be taken away from me, that if the war ended, we would set up a plan where we could find each other again. And it almost always involved going somewhere that both of you knew at a certain time and meeting there. So in other words, if we get separated and get torn apart, if the war ends and this all ends, I'll meet you on Wednesdays at 12 o'clock in front of Grace Fellowship Church. And I'll be there on Wednesdays at noon. And if you're alive, you'll come there. And that's how we'll reunite our marriage and our family. So as a young Jewish couple, newly married, she was taken to Auschwitz, and he was sent to Majdanek to another work camp, and they were separated, but they had made their plan for what are we going to do if we survive the war, especially young people. Well, the war ended in May of 1945, and their plan was, some of you who've been to our lovely city in Poland, was to meet in front of St. Mary's Cathedral, the big, beautiful cathedral in the square there, at 12 o'clock on Fridays. So come on Friday, I'll be there, you come, we'll be reunited, and that's how we'll find each other. Because back then, you know, there wasn't, we didn't know internet and any of that stuff, find people, no cell phones. So many people were lost. So the woman survived. This was, um, this story was told in the newspapers in Poland. She went to St. Mary's the first Friday, she was free, and he wasn't there on, on noon, at noon. And she went the next Friday, and next Friday, and... She just kept going every Friday for six months. What a great story. In November of 1945, over six months after the war ended, she walked up to St. Mary's, and there he was. <laughs> they great. They uh, were reunited. They ended up moving to Israel together. They had like 
four or five kids, a bunch of grandchildren. Both of them lived into their 80s. What Paul is saying is that every morning we wake up, we should be thinking, this is the day that Jesus is coming back. Whether he comes back or not this morning isn't the point. The point is we should be living like he is. And that puts our attention on heavenly things and living the new life that he gives us the power to live in the resurrection. We should live with that kind of hope every morning of every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and please forgive me for talking so long. And God, we pray that you would help us to live the life that you intend for us, that we could live with our hearts set on kingdom principles and kingdom living and allegiance to you. And pray that as we do that, that those things that are hidden from the world around us would become evident. And more and more would join your family and experience the new life that can be had in you, Christ Jesus. Help us to live with the hope of your imminent return. And that we would live with that expectation each day. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.